Right now, I want you to put your hands together and give a real good Lakeside welcome to a favorite Lakeside guest speaker, Dr. Joe Davis. God bless you, Dr. Joe. Amen. Thank you so much, Pastor Phil. It is great to be back with you all. I do hope that you can come to Israel with us. I know some of you are concerned about some of the violence that is going there, like with many places. It, of course, is localized uh, to the Gaza Strip, and we will not take you. And even if there were, and there are some from time to time incidents, I want to let you know that the per capita violent death rate in the United States far exceeds Israel. My recommendation to you is you should never go to a violent place like the United States. <laughs> I was wondering at our last service well, how I was going to be introduced. Pastor Phil said, I'd like you all to help us with Scrooge. <laughs> Fortunately, he did not call me up at that time. But I see that you've already made accommodations for my speaking today. Wherever I go, I see this in the corner. And just in case it gets a little boring, you feel free to just come up here and take a nap. Well, ladies and gentlemen, before we begin, and you can go ahead and turn in your scriptures if you would, we're going to look at uh, Philippians 2, verse 6. But before, while you're looking, I want to thank you all. I want to thank you not only for uh, just the hospitality that you show me whenever I come, but you all provided support for a missions trip and missions trips for me to be able to go over to Europe also. I was able to speak and hold healing services in Luxembourg, and I spoke in Italian churches, uh, not as much as your pastor, uh, French churches, and even some English-speaking churches over in Europe. And I want to thank you all for that. By the way, you also support Southeastern University. Now, talk about missions. We how many did we send? Over 70 teams of young students went out on the mission field this past year. How about that for fulfilling the mandate? Yeah, go ahead and give Jesus a round of applause. But the truth of the matter is, you did it. You helped furnish the means. And so I'd like to encourage you to continue your support. And, and I want to tell you a little secret too. My church was one-third international, and we loved sending people and giving to missions. I believe the most healthy thing a church can do is to give to missions. And so I want to thank you so much for all of your giving. All right, ladies and gentlemen, let's go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Philippians 2. And we're going to tackle something tough today. And for those of you who have not uh, heard me before, uh, I have a background in philosophy, and I also teach systematic theology and apologetics at the university. And so as a result, I like to take on the tough things. I like to take on the things that, frankly, make us think, and I'm going to tell you why. You don't have to leave your head at the door when you come into church. God wants to change not only your heart, but your head. And one of the things that often occurs in churches is we focus on the heart, and rightfully so. However, I want to tell you that it's okay as a Christian to actually think. You can use your brain. And some of the greatest heroes of the faith have actually been fairly intelligent people too. John Wesley was an Oxford fellow. Jonathan Edwards may be one of the smartest men ever born. And I want to tell you a quote from a man at Oxford. He's Alistair McGrath, and I love this quote. He says, 
A little bit of science will make one an atheist. A lot of science will make one a theologian. All right, ladies and gentlemen, we're going to handle the very tough issue today of the humanity of Christ. And I'm going to ask the question, how did he do that? How can a person be God and man at the same time? And what does it mean that he is both God and man? All right, here it is, Philippians 2. It says this, being in the very nature of God, he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing. And taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in his appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death and even death on a cross. Therefore God has exalted him through the highest place and given him a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow in heaven and earth and under the earth, and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you now and we thank you for the great opportunity that we have to hear your word. Holy Spirit, come now and reveal your word to us. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen. Get a job, you bum! These are the words that greeted a gentleman who just wanted to play his violin. He decided that he was going to play his violin in Washington during the subway system at Lafont, the place where thousands of people get out every morning. He decided he would play for about 45 minutes, and in his tattered clothes, he decided to put a little cup out just in case anybody would want to contribute to his violin playing. As he began to play, literally over 1,000 people walked past the greatest violinist of our time. His name is Joshua Bell. And Joshua Bell put on a 45-minute conference, and only seven people stopped to listen to the greatest virtuoso of our time. $100 a seat is what it cost if you would go to hear him. And he just recently had played in Boston, and every seat was filled, and everybody who came, the minimum seat was $100. $100. What was the cost of the violin that he was playing? Well, it was a 1917 Stradivarius. Cost? $3.5 million. Now, if you ask me, I would have never taken a $3.5 million violin into the subway. But he decided he just wanted to have some fun. Just wanted to see if people could actually recognize good music or recognize a maestro in the midst. The truth of the matter is, no one recognized Joshua Bell. 2,000 years ago, another maestro came into our midst, and his name is Jesus. And Jesus was born in a little town of Bethlehem, and born incognito, he came as a human being. And so tonight, today, I'm not going to preach that long, actually. Today, <laughs> we're going to look at what does it mean that Jesus became a human being? And I'm going to ask the very hard question, how did he do that? I'm going to tell you it's important for us to understand this. Number one, a number of cults have arisen as a result of not fully understanding the divinity and humanity of Christ and how they go together. Jehovah's Witnesses say that Jesus became a god, that he started as a man, but he did such a great job that they decided to bump him up to God. I don't know how you do that. I don't really know how you become God. You did a great job today. Would you like to be God? I don't think that's actually possible. 
The Mormons say this, that all of you are actually gods. It's not just Jesus. It's just simply that Jesus is the, well, he's like us, and if we just do it like Jesus did, then you become God too. And by the way, everybody's evolving into a, another stage. By the way, even God the Father is trying to do better so he can get another universe. That is exactly what Mormonism says. Now, ladies and gentlemen, I'm going to tell you because of the misunderstanding, some people have refused to believe, too. They're like, well, it just doesn't make any sense. It's just a fairy tale. It's just a myth. People don't actually believe that sort of thing anymore. I do, and I'm going to explain how. And then finally, I'm going to tell you your faith will be affected by what you believe about the humanity of Christ. There was a moment in time where Jesus said these words, I'll go. And not only did he say, I'll go, I think that he meant these three things. I'll go, I'll stay, and I'll bring them home. Now, what do I mean by that? There was a time before time where a decision was made. When I say before time, I'm going to ask my beautiful wife, Mrs. Davis, if you will grab me that box and bring it up to me. She did not know that she was going to do this, and she's highly embarrassed whenever she's before a crowd. Sometimes she feels boxed in. Sorry. It's biological, confirmed by my environment. Before time ever began, there was a God who actually was before time. And one of the great things about your faith that you may not know is that your faith is frankly the only one that starts out with a God before time. All other religions say that there is a God in time, and frankly that God is, how shall we say, not able to escape from time. But in your Bible, it begins with three beautiful words. Anybody know what they begin as? Genesis 1.1 says what? In the beginning, and there's our first clue for the very first time in history. Anybody tells you differently, please have them come see me. I'll be more than happy to explain how that is inaccurate if they believe differently. When people say all religions are the same, I'm going to explain to you one of the differences. Number one, Christianity and Judaism, or Judeo-Christianity, says that in fact that there's a God before time who, though he can come into time, is not bound by time. Let me explain it this way by the box. You see, I have a box here. Can I actually get in the box? Well, you could say I could, but I'm a little too big to fit totally. But watch this. Am I in the box? Yes, I am. How does God enter time? God can be in the box without being defined by the box or bound by the box. Do you feel boxed in yet? We'll keep going. And if you're wondering, is the whole sermon going to be like this? The answer is no. I'm only doing this just for a few moments. And then we'll say, will he start preaching soon? Well, the answer is God can be in the box, but notice my other foot. Is my foot in the box, both of them? Which means this, that God can be in time without being bound by time, and he can also be outside of time at the same time. If I had more time, I'd explain it. <laughs> Does this make sense? Okay, so when people say, how can God go into time? Let's start with this idea. God's bigger than the box. God's bigger than time. God comes before time, and he can do whatever he pretty much wants to. Let's talk about humanity. Can God become man? Let's start with the idea of the box. Can God precede humanity and make humanity in the image and likeness of God? Yes. Has God already created a vehicle through which he knows he's going to enter? Yes. Is God bound by it? No. And so what do we mean by this? At a moment in time, God said, I'll go. I'll stay. And when I'm done, I'll bring them home. So what I'd like to talk to you today about is the gift of Christmas. 
Because the simple truth of the matter is many of us have this idea of Christmas which is completely foreign to the idea of what Jesus was trying to communicate. How many of you went Black Friday shopping just recently? Raise your hand. How many of you sustained injuries during Black Friday shopping? Do not raise your hand. Did you see what happened in England? They decided to do the Black Friday shopping. <laughs> Did you see in England that they had mayhem? Wasn't it wonderful? We've exported Christmas to England. Yeah, except I think that Christmas actually began in Bethlehem, and it really doesn't have much to do with Black Friday shopping. I went Black Friday shopping for the very first time this past year. <laughs> it was frightening. It was frightening. I saw people pushing aside people to get presents, running over people, being rude with people, and that was just my family. So the simple truth of the matter is, it was shocking to me the carnage that was occurring on Black Friday. I mean, seriously, if you've never gone Black Friday shopping, you should go as a sociologist. You should go just to observe people and like, oh my golly, maybe people really are animals. You know, it's, like, it's just like frightening to see all of these people running for presents. You know, I, I'm just, and when I stood there, I thought to myself, really, is this what Christmas has come to? How about we get back to Jesus? How about we keep Christ in Christmas? How about we celebrate Christmas? And you know what? I'm tired of the world hijacking our holidays. This is our holiday. It's about Jesus, and I'm going to stand for Christ. Now, what does Jesus mean when he says, I'm going to go? It means very simply this, that he wanted to go. And if you ask me to explain the incarnation, the hardest thing to explain about the incarnation is why that he would want to go. The simple truth of the matter is, can you imagine what it would be like to be perfect and then come to imperfection, to see people who are going to absolutely disregard you? If you've ever been misunderstood, think what it would be like to be God and no one knows it. I mean, could you imagine walking around and keeping that kind of secret? I don't think I could do that. I mean, somebody ticked me off, I'd have to say, by the way, I'm God. You know, and, and how about people on the road who butt in front of you? I don't know if anyone butt in front of Pastor Phil. It didn't sound that way. But the simple truth of the matter is, have you ever been on the road and someone cuts right in front of you? Imagine what you would do if you were God. Oh, that was not the right thing to do. <laughs> That was definitely not the right thing to do. Watch out up ahead, hole in the ground. How about Walmart? Let's be honest, sometimes it can be just carnage in Walmart. And one of the things that I think about, and, and listen, I'm not trying to say that I'm normal at all, because sometimes, you know, thoughts come to me, and I really, I really have to work with them a little bit, you know, because every, I go to that under 20 item line, you know, 20 or less items at Walmart. How many of you have ever been in the 20 item line? You know what I'm talking about? Okay. So, all right. So anyway, I'm in this line and, and, and I'm going to tell you a story. If this is you, I'm just going to say, you need to repent. If you've got 45 items in the 20 item line, you either can't count or you need to repent. So I'm standing in line and this woman, she has like the cart load is full. How could you possibly think that's 20 items? That's not 20 in anybody, not even new math, that's not 20 items. You know, and so I'm looking and I'm thinking to myself, if I were God, what I would do right now is when she put that 21st item up on that counter, it would like, it would disintegrate to salt right in her hands. Or maybe like she would put it up and it would go, 
and just fly right out of her, you know, just so that she couldn't actually put a 21st one. Or my favorite fantasy when I'm, I'm in Walmart line and I see someone with lots of items, I think, wouldn't it be funny to have it stuck to their hand? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Sorry, it's 21. Aren't you glad I'm not God? <laughs> yes, yeah. How about you, Mrs. Davis? Aren't you? Yeah, she's very glad, yeah. Well, the simple truth of the matter is imagine what it would be like to be God. Can you imagine Jesus' parents, by the way? I never hear sermons on this. I think it's hysterical. What would it like to be Jesus' parents? The kid irritates you. Oh, yeah, no, I'm not doing that. <laughs> yeah, it's just not doing that one, you know. And, and, and you remember the story of the temple? It's so funny because what occurs is Jesus stays behind to look over the scriptures. And what occurs is his parents, they're actually walking in a caravan. And, and it's not just them, but other people with them. And then they suddenly say, where's Jesus? Oh, uh, I don't know. Where is he? Yeah, I don't know. He, he's not here, is he? We'll all have to go back, won't we? We'll have to go back to Jerusalem. How far is it? Well, it's just a, a day or two's journey. Yeah. Can you imagine how you would feel if you had to walk two days to get your kid? I mean, serious. I don't care you're God. Oh, whoops. <laughs> oh, that's blasphemy. Never mind. Okay. But can you imagine what it would be like? You would be, and you can almost hear it even in the scriptures, you know, and, and in the Greek, they don't have this in the Hebrew and the Masoretic text. They actually have voice intonation as to how you raise your voice or lower your voice. The Greek doesn't have that. I wish it did because I would love to hear the intonation on this. Jesus' parents say to him, where were you? I'm thinking it was not that calm. I'm thinking it was more like, where were you? And notice Jesus says, do you not know I must be about my father's business? At that moment, you know, I think they're like ready to strangle him. They go, oh yeah, virgin birth. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I don't, yeah, maybe we will. Okay, all right. Notice his parents don't say anything after that. They just, yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah, all right, okay. It would have been kind of hard to raise Jesus. Seriously, it would be hard. Because whatever you're thinking, it's wrong. You know, every time you get angry, you're wrong. Okay, so, I, and, and here's what's sort of fun about this. What's crazy is that Jesus is really human from, from pregnancy up. Who would ever think like that? Who would even ever take that chance? Who would want to? And so when Jesus says, I'll go, I can't believe that someone would want to. But not only does he say, I'll go, what's even more amazing to me is he says, I'll stay. You see, how long would it take to do the atonement and the resurrection? Well, the truth of the matter is probably about three days. He dies and then he's risen on the third day. So how long is it? Uh, three days. Why is he here for 33 years? You see, if he could do the task of the atonement in three days, why not just do it in a shorter period of time? Here's why. And it has something to do with both the humanity and the divinity of Christ. In Galatians 4, 4, it says it's born of a woman. What's that mean? He's human. Second thing it says, born under the law. 
Why? So those of us who have broken the law, those of us who've sinned, those of us who have done wrong could be liberated from it. How's that going to happen? Jesus is going to have to live a perfect human life in order to be able to pay the debt that's owed. What debt? The debt of your sin. Now you might say, well, well, why would we have a debt before God? I think one of the fundamental works of the Holy Spirit to bring somebody to Christ is this, to make them aware that they have in fact offended God. It's very easy to just say, well, everybody does it. But you see, that doesn't really tell us why you did it. It's very easy to say, well, you know, it's just the way humans are. But you see, that's the point. By Jesus living 33 years, he wants to make a statement about what it means to be a human. You see, he could have done the atonement very quickly. And even if he fulfilled the law for, like, say, a few years, maybe that would have been enough. But he came 33 years, and not just as a male, and how shall we say, not just as a, as a male a Jewish person born at, like, 13. You see, he could have fulfilled the law if he was born at 13, because at that point, he's entering into what the Jewish people understood, the age of accountability. And so what occurs is he becomes responsible for his sins. And let me say very quickly, what is the age of accountability? It's different for every single person, because people mature at different ages. I remember my daughter when she was four years old. She came to faith in Christ. And being four, I, I wanted to make sure that she actually knew what she was she was saying and what she was thinking, and I remember she, she said, Dad, can you come in my room? I want to tell you I accepted Jesus today as my Savior. And so as a four-year-old, uh, I, I thought, well, I wonder if she actually understands all of this. And I said, well, tell me about it, Catherine. And she said, well, I began to think about all the bad things that I had done. I'm thinking, you're four. How many bad things have you done? <laughs> and she goes, as I began to think about it, I became very sad. And I got down on my knees and I said, Dear God, please take away all the bad things that I've done and forgive me of my sins. Cleanse me and come into my heart and make me clean. And she said, Dad, when I prayed that prayer, I felt Jesus come into me. Can four-year-olds understand salvation? I had no doubt in my mind that she had accepted Christ as her Savior. And yet what a four-year-old was able to do, some of us are not able to do because of that one thing. Remember, she said, I became very aware of all the bad things that I've done. Listen, let me tell you how you do that. As long as you measure yourself against other people, you always come up fine. <laughs> We've always got Hitler that we can measure ourselves against, you know? Like, well, I'm not as bad as Hitler. And now we've just found out that Joe Stalin actually killed more people than Hitler. So we can even say, and there's Joe Stalin too. But when you use an imperfect measurement, you will always come up with an imperfect conclusion. There's only one measurement, and his name is God. And if you measure yourself against other people, you're always going to come out looking good. And I'm going to tell you, when I used to do jail ministry, and I would sit down and talk to rapists and murderers, people who'd done horrendous things, they would say, at least I'm not a child molester. To which I would say, well, then, I don't see how we have any problem with you murdering people. I can see that. 
But you see, you're using the same argument. It's just a different sin. There's only one measurement, and it's Christ. And the reason that he came in the flesh is so that it could be a valid measurement. Now, one of the things that you might say, though, but it's not really valid because he's God. I mean, yeah, he lived a perfect life, but anybody who's God could live a perfect life. I think most Christians approach Jesus' humanity and divinity in this way. Let me explain it this way. How many of you think Miguel Cabrera will make it to the Hall of Fame? Raise your hand. Do you know who he is? No, I bet you don't, do you? Not here in Detroit. How many of you think Miguel Cabrera will make it to the Hall of Fame? Those of you who know anything about baseball. If you know anything about baseball, you're probably raising your hand. How about Al Kaline? Is he in the Hall of Fame? You heard of him in Detroit? Yeah, yeah, okay. All right, how about Barry Bonds? How many of you think Barry will make it to the Hall of Fame? I hear no. Why? Why won't Barry Bonds make it to the Hall of Fame? He's a cheater. That's right. As a matter of fact, he hit more home runs than Hank Aaron or Babe Ruth, but he's probably not going to make it to the Hall of Fame. And by the way, the person who holds the single season record, Mark McGuire, uh, they passed on him too. They've decided he's not going to make it to the Hall of Fame because he used steroids. In other words, what we're saying is we don't really give cheaters any acolytes. So tell me again how Jesus lived a perfect life. Is it because he cheated? In other words, the reason you believe Jesus lived a perfect life is, well, because he's God. No. He lived a perfect life as a human. And one of the heresies that the church has fought against for 2,000 years is the idea that, in fact, you can mix the parts of Jesus. In other words, I think most people's opinion of Jesus is he's 50% man, 50% God. No. He's 100% God and 100% man. He's as much a human being as you are. As a matter of fact, I'm going to tell you that he's even more human than you are. Now, you might say, well, how is that even possible? What do you want? Because your view of humanity is based upon what is normal. And you look out at human beings and you say, well, that's what a human being is. There's two different definitions for normal. One is a numerical one, meaning greatest number of people. The other is that which was the design. Jesus is more human than you are, oddly enough, because he's without sin. What do I mean by that? Sin is a dehumanizing cancer that eats away your humanity. And in fact, think of the picture of Dorian Gray. Those of you who are old enough to remember that. All of his sins were put on a picture. And the result of that is the picture becomes very gross. It becomes so horrible, we can't even look at it. And so what occurs is we measure ourselves against other people, and we come up with the idea of normal based upon a flawed measurement. I'll say it this way. Imagine that you grew up in a cancer ward. What would people look like who are going through chemotherapy? Unless you were born there. Would people be losing their hair? Yeah. Would people die? Yes. Would people have fatigue? Yes. Would they lose their appetite to eat? 
Yes. Would their skin tone look sort of ashen? Yes. Would some of them struggle with depression? Yes. So your view, if you only had the cancer ward of humanity, is depressed, fatigued, ashen, dying, loss of hair, and that would be normal. Every single one of you have a disease that is far worse than cancer because in every case it's fatal and it's called sin. And as we see people dying of cancer and we see the effects of cancer and chemotherapy, what we know is that this is a disease. Your understanding of humanity is a diseased view of humanity. Because your view of humanity is humanity that has sin in it. And Christ is called in the Scriptures a second Adam. He's called the firstborn of creation because, in fact, His humanity is the humanity that yours is being modeled after. How do I know that? Because you're called to grow in Christ. You see, you can't actually grow in His divinity. You're not going to become divine. So what does it mean to grow in Christ? It means to grow into the understanding of who Christ is, who is the first fruit of the resurrection. And so Christ is going to live a fully human life from the moment of birth all the way through death. And Christ is bodily raised. Does he go up in a human body into heaven? Look it up. He absolutely does. And so you might say, well, what does he need a human body for? Because you too are going to get another body. Therefore, Christ is the model of what it means to be human, and we are called to imitate Christ because He is the fuller understanding of our humanity than anyone who has ever lived. Karl Barth says it this way, Christ is the fullest revelation of both God and man. It's not just God, it's man too. Let me prove it to you. Turn to Matthew 24, 36, and we're going to explain how He did it. In Matthew 24, 36, Jesus is asked the question, when will the world of, end of the world be? And he says these words, no one knows the day nor the hour, not the angels in heaven, not the Son, but only the Father. Now that's a very weird thing to say. I thought you were God. How can you not know? Isn't one of the definitions of God all-knowing? Well, how is it that you don't know? If you're God and you don't know, then you're not God. No. Let's explain it. I said before that Jesus is not a mixture of divinity and humanity. He's 100%, 100%. Now, that may sound a little strange and a little hard to understand, but let me put it on another level. Have you ever suppressed thoughts in your own brain or heart? Sure you have, okay? Do people have the ability to suppress thoughts and block thoughts to such a degree they don't even know they exist? Yeah. There's a lady I know who, 40 years after she was molested, began to have dreams about molestation. She did not know that she was molested. Well, what happened to her? Why didn't she know it? The answer is that she had suppressed those thoughts for 40 years, and they began to awaken her dreams. What's my point? When Jesus is walking around the earth, He's 100% God, 100% man, but his divinity cannot blow out his humanity. Now, what do I mean by that? 
Here's where it gets a little tricky and interesting and wonderful all at the same time. When he's walking around, he has the ability at any moment to be omnipresent and omniscient in his divinity. He can know everything. So how is it that he doesn't know here? It's not because he can't. It's because he chooses not to. Now, why would he choose that? Because he wants to be like you. All right, more information. How many miracles does Jesus do before the Holy Spirit as a form of a dove comes upon him at his baptism? Could Jesus have done a miracle as a seven-year-old child? Did he? How about 13? Can he do it at 13? Does he? Why does he wait? The answer is, Jesus says in John 5.30, I do nothing of myself. And in Matthew 12.28, Jesus actually tells us how he is doing the miracles. And for those in a Pentecostal church, this will blow your mind. Jesus says, I cast out evil spirits through the Holy Spirit. Well, don't you find this a little bit strange that Jesus would need the Holy Spirit? And when I say need, be careful there would use the Holy Spirit when he has all the power he needs. Turn to Luke 4.1. Let's examine some more. In Luke 4.1, it reads this, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the desert, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil, giving nothing to eat, and at the end of them he was hungry. Human beings get hungry. I want you to notice something. Luke 4, 1 says the Holy Spirit led him. The Greek word here is actually more push or drive. Why would Jesus need the Holy Spirit to lead him if he's God? Why would he even do that? It's very simple. Jesus lives on earth for 33 years to show you how to do it. And he submits himself to the Holy Spirit, not because he has to, but because he wants to show you how to live a Spirit-filled life. And so the Holy Spirit is now leading Jesus, not because Jesus can't lead himself, but because he's trying to show us as human beings how to do this thing called life. So even though he's God, he chooses to live a human life, and that means being in submission to even the Holy Spirit, who is his equal. Can I prove that? I absolutely can, because he says it. What does this mean? Jesus says, you're going to do even greater miracles than me. Do you remember him saying that? It's not possible if it's based upon your divinity, because you don't have any. It's based upon the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is unlimited in his power. And later on, as we look down to this, this temptation, notice the words that Satan uses, if you're the Son of God. Do you think Satan knew whether Jesus was the Son of God? I think he did. The demons, the little demons know who he is. Well, why does he say that? And here's what's beautiful about Jesus coming to earth. He says this because he's saying to Jesus, isn't it hard to do what you're doing? And I always used to wonder, what's the big deal about changing rock into bread? He changed water into wine. 
Why would that be any different? And some people say, well, it's because Satan's telling him to do it. I'm going to disagree with that because if Satan says love your wife, it doesn't mean, or husband, love your spouse, it doesn't mean it's wrong to do so. Satan can only say things that are intrinsically wrong. So what makes this intrinsically wrong? It's because human beings don't do that unless guided by the Spirit. And so the temptation is really this. Isn't it hard to be a human? Remember what it was like when you were in heaven and you didn't have any needs at all. And look at you now. You're hungry. No one knows who you are. Let's be done with this charade. Let's just be done with all of this. People aren't worth it. You see, the temptation is much more subtle. The temptation is this. Stop being human. But Jesus answers it this way. Listen to the way he answers. Man! Man! Man shall not live by bread alone. And I think what Jesus is saying at that point is, I'm going to go through this as a human being, and you can tempt me all you want, but by the time I'm done, I will have the keys of hell, and your head will be under my foot. But the only way he can do that is if he's a man. And it's amazing to me that he wanted to. Cindy, if you'll come on up, please. The final thing is, he says, I'll bring them home. And the way that he brought them home is he decided that he was going to be a human being. Just like you and me. You say, well, he's not like you and me because he's God. I understand. But what I mean to tell you and explain is that he can never let his divinity crush his humanity. He has to keep them both intact. In the same way that you can have thoughts in your mind that you suppress, at moments Christ said, I'm not going to think about that. When it came down to power, there were moments where he could have changed a stone into bread. But he decided that he was going to go through like you and me. And when I mentioned Barry Bonds, we all agree that cheaters, we can't really reward them with anything. So I want to ask you again, do you really think that Jesus cheated in his humanity in order to live a perfect human life? He went through it, just like you and me. Why? Well, that's what Christmas is all about, folks. To give you a gift. To give you a gift, not only of eternal life, but eternal life that begins now. To reshape your humanity. To help you to become the person you were created to be. Jesus Christ is the blueprint for what it means to be human. And when we disagree, 
you basically said the cross is null and void. He has to be a perfect human. Years ago, around the time of Jesus, actually, Caesar Augustus decided to send a gift. Caesar sent it to a gentleman who done a lot of work for him. The gift was very lavish. The gentleman sent it back and he said, I, I'm not worthy to receive this gift. Well, Caesar really wanted to give it, and so he sent it again and he said, please receive this gift on my behalf. It was sent back a second time, and again, the words written were, I'm not worthy to receive this gift. Finally, Caesar sent it a third time, and again, it came back. And this third time really frustrated Caesar. And so he wrote on the little scroll that was given to him, he said, it may be true that you're not worthy to receive this gift. but I am worthy to give it. Please do not send it back to me again. By doing so, you question my desire and my goodness. Please receive this gift. I meant it for you. This Christmas, there are many people here Christ wants to give the greatest gift of all, and that is eternal life. I'd like you to stand to your feet if you would. If you've never received the greatest gift of all, it begins, begins with a little boy in Bethlehem born to a lady named Mary. And he made that long journey from heaven to earth just for you. I'd like all of you, if you would, just to close your eyes. Is there someone here who is ready to receive the gift that God wants to give to you? If this is your first time becoming a believer in Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit is touching your heart and you say, I want to be a follower of Jesus, would you raise your hand? Father, thanks so much for our time. And help me to truly understand the meaning of Christmas. In Jesus' name, amen. Pastor.